Hello, and welcome back to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Paul Van Heisteda. This week, we go back to Jerusalem and the reestablishing of God's people in His holy city. However, before things could proceed, there needed to be a mass cleansing of the priests, Levites, gates, the wall, and the people. Once the purification had been achieved, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This rejoicing not only made the people's hearts overflow with joy, but also with generosity. Now today we are not required to sacrifice goats or wave hyssop to purify ourselves before God. Christ has come and his one sacrifice on the cross has made atonement for all our past, present, and future sins. God cleanses. His people respond with joy and great worship and generosity. Listen now as Pastor Ian Wildeboer unpacks this all for us under the theme, A Model for Great Worship. Enjoy and God bless. So again this morning, I'm particularly excited, as I generally am. Uh, to preach the gospel to you this morning. But I'm particularly excited for, for maybe two reasons. The first reason I'm particularly excited to preach the gospel to you this morning is because we've kind of reached uh, the climax in the book of Nehemiah. We've waited since September to reach this day. That excites me. We started with the impassable walls, the broken down walls. We started with a vacant city and, and very delinquent, a very delinquent church, you could say, in Israel 400 years before Jesus. And now we have the walls rebuilt. We have a city that's populated and a temple with temple worshiping, functioning as it should be as a temple of the Lord. And that, just that should excite us and excites me this morning. What else excites me is this, that this message is all about worship. Worship that flows from a heart that's bursting with joy for what God has done. And this, as we will learn in our message this morning, is very counter-cultural. I don't believe um, we live in a culture that actually knows how to worship the Almighty anymore. And because of that, it's very depressed. But we have a society here in Israel, and it's reflected also in the New Jerusalem and in glory of a people hungry for worship and delighting in worshiping their king. So, so we're going to learn about that this morning. But before we get into Nehemiah, I, I want to um, open to the New Testament, a New Testament passage. And, and really what we're going to do in the next just two minutes is we're going to allow John the Apostle, he's a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, kind of pull back the curtain and allow us to get a, a small glimpse of worshiping saints and angels in heaven, before the throne of Jesus. Now this is about 10 million times more beautiful and stronger and more powerful and more holy than what we get to experience in the days of Nehemiah. But the days of Nehemiah are a glimpse of the joy that we will experience when we finally meet our Savior called the Lamb in 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 the Bible here, 
in chapter 7 of, Nehemiah, of Revelation, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. His name, of course, is Jesus. So let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. And we're going to just read a few verses um, about this worship that's happening there. Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After this, this is John, the disciple, the apostle on the island of Patmos, having this vision, and this is what he sees. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one, no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around uh, the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And they fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. We move from that experience to a shadow of that experience in Jerusalem. 400 years or 500 years before Christ. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, as it were, stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And we're going to see a people group of thousands of people, moms and dads and children and aunts and uncles and kids and all worshiping God with, with cymbals and harps and lyres and creating such a volume that it could be heard uh, many miles and miles away. It's almost as if the, the pages are dancing with joy as we open the book of Nehemiah this morning. I have two prayers for you, for us this morning. Two prayers, probably more. Probably gonna limit to two. Here's my first prayer, that if you're here this morning or watching online and you do not know yet the joy that comes from worshiping Jesus, that my prayer for you this morning is that you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life who works on your heart I, I pray that he will break through your skepticism, your crushing self, and he will crush, sorry, your self-reliance. He will open your eyes to the hope that you have in him and fuel a passion, a joy, a delight that you've never known before in your life because now you know Jesus. That's my prayer for you. But for those who have walked with Jesus for many years now, I have a prayer for you as well. That maybe for you who are experiencing the burdens of these dark days, a heaviness on your soul, the dark night of your soul, maybe for you sadness, not joy, seems to be your closest friend this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit will also work mightily in your life. 
to show you afresh this morning that there's reason for joy. There is still reason for joy in Christ. That you are loved, that God is for you, not against you, and that your hope, your only hope is anchored in heaven. And his name is Jesus. So that's my prayer for you. And that prayer is connected to what we're going to learn about this morning from Nehemiah chapter 12. So let's open our Bibles now to that book of the Bible. It's an Old Testament book. Nehemiah was an administrator uh, that God used powerfully to build his church, you could say, in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ. Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. But the first few verses, the first 26 verses, in fact, um, I'm going to skip over. Again, there are a lot of great names in there. These, these names and the people that are represented in the first uh, 26 verses are Levites who are being documented, whose names are being documented because they have an important part in corporate worship. They were to lead God's people, lead God's church in the worship of his people. So each one's important. They have a place in the economy of God's salvation. I get that. But we're going to focus now on what we call the dedication of the wall. And that, and that is from verse 27 through to verses 47. And don't worry, there's some fun names in there as well. So we're going to still hit more names today. seems every chapter has brilliant Hebrew names for us to enjoy. Okay. Verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they had lived and were brought into Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Bethel Gilgal, and from the area of Geba, and as Maveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Verse 30. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go on top of the wall. I also assigned two large or great choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate, Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Ezariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with the trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jotham, or Jonathan, sorry, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Ezrael, Maliah, Galilah, Maya, Nathan. Nathanael, Judah, Hanani, with music, musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, we know that name, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. I don't have a diagram to show you, but you're just going to have to imagine all the walking and movement of this, these choirs. The second choir proceeded to, in the opposite direction. I, that's Nehemiah, followed them on top of the wall together with the other half of the people. 
past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshanah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Henanel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate at the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eloanai, Zechariah, Hananiah, and with their trumpets, and also Masiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezariah. Verse 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women... And children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law. For the priests and the Levites, the Judah and for Judah was sorry, for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of uh, purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, also Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the, ask the Lord for a blessing over this message. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have a word for us this morning. We thank you for your truth, which is embedded in your holy word. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a people of joy. We want joy to characterize our lives. And that joy, Lord, we know needs to be found in you and in you alone. So allow your Holy Spirit to do an awesome work in our hearts this morning so that we can not only go to that fountain of joy, but we can drink deeply from that fountain and see that joy well up in our own lives according to your will and to your glory, we pray. Amen. Here's my theme, a model for great worship. I'm going to look at three things this morning just to unpack this passage for you. The first thing is great cleansing. A model for great worship involves great cleansing. It also involves great joy and great giving, but we'll get to that. Let's begin with the cleansing. The, the truth of this passage, of this part of the sermon, is this, that you, my friend, can be clean. And all God's people say... Amen. I, I just want to remind you that just saying that is, is a glorious, glorious truth. That you can be clean. Now here, here, here's the context, just very, very briefly. We read in chapter 7 of Nehemiah 
that the wall had been rebuilt, and, I, and this is Nehemiah speaking, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. So, so this has happened a few chapters before us, that the wall has now been finished. But it's taken many months before there was a dedication, before Nehemiah felt it was time to dedicate these walls. And maybe just for a few reasons. The first reason, it was simply this. The, vac- the city was vacant. So we had all these beautiful walls, but what was it surrounding? There was nobody there, or just a few. We learned last month, or last week, sorry, that many people had moved in, so the city was no longer vacant. But there was a bigger problem going on in Israel on, at that day when the walls were done, and, and that's the impurities of God's people. They were plagued with impurity. They had corrupted themselves by unlawful marriages. They were marrying unbelieving spouses from foreign countries. And they were, they were defiling their children and themselves by these marriages. They were breaking the fourth commandment. They were not keeping the Sabbath, mostly because they were just simply greedy. They just wanted more money. And although they were diligent in finishing the walls, their hearts were divided. The things of this world were more important than the things of God. And Nehemiah noticed that. They were not ready to dedicate the wall. Because it's not about the wall. It's about the heart. It's about God's people being excited about worshiping God. still is today. It's not about the building. It's about your heart, loved ones. You can have the nicest church And it can be vacuous, empty of any spiritual life because there's no heart in there. There's no Christ in there. There's no spirit of Christ living in that church. And so so what happens from chapter 7 through chapter 8 is the great revival. Chapter 8, we realized in chapter 8 verse 1 that they actually called Ezra and asked him uh, to, to read the book of the law in their hearing. And so Ezra did, and, and, and many of you have been part of the story and, and the sermon series that I've been preaching. And as Ezra opened the word of God to the people, they began to, help me out, weep. Okay, you got to read that chapter again. You all failed. They began to weep over their sins. And then they began to confess their sins. And then they began to pray. And then they began to recommit themselves to, to Sabbath worship and, and, and the worship of the Sabbath day and, 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 and to holy marriage and, and, and to giving. And, and they committed themselves to that. And they also committed themselves to moving into Jerusalem. Well, that day has now passed. And Nehemiah is like, voila. I think we're ready. I think we're ready to dedicate these walls. The hearts are ready. The walls have been completed. And so he does. And the first thing that happens then, which is very interesting, is what we read about in verse 30. These words. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So before they begin this this procession on top of the wall and and, and singing and these choirs and these sacrifices and all this jubilation, they purify themselves. I don't think I need to remind you this morning, loved ones, but I will, that God is all about your purity. 
I'll say that again. God is all about your purity. Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, that's the temple mount, or who may stand in his holy place. Here's the answer. You ready for the answer? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, because God's all about our purity. The purity ritual that they're going to follow now, we don't actually know exactly how they purify themselves. We know water is going to be involved, but maybe hyssop, maybe the sprinkling of blood, that's a hyssop plant. But we know this, that the purity ritual was an outward demonstration of an inward reality. The purity ritual was an outward demonstration of something that was happening in the heart, and that is the hearts of God's people, the priests and the people were being cleansed, and, and, and the gates and the walls, these inanimate objects, were being purified. They were being dedicated, set apart for the Lord. And, and, and this morning, I, I just want to spend a little bit of time. We're going to camp out here for a little bit because it's really important about purity because God's all about our purity. I, I'm going to begin with inanimate objects like walls and gates. The place is the wall. The thing is the gate. They are to be set apart, dedicated to the Lord. They are to be holy. I wonder this morning if there are places and things in your life that you need to purify and dedicate to the Lord. Just asking. Hebrews 13 verse 4 gives us an example of what that looks like. It says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Your marriage bed, loved ones, is to be dedicated to the Lord. Your worship is impeded when our marriage bed is not pure. And the marriage bed is pure when we dedicate it to the Lord. That is, when we enjoy intimacy between a husband and wife who are living in holy matrimony then the marriage bed is pure. There is grace for those who have been deceived and have broken faith in this area. But it doesn't undermine God's command that the marriage bed ought to be pure. Any sexual activity outside of that holy union makes the bed impure. And I don't think I need to remind you and maybe the youth, but even older members this morning, that there's no such thing as a dating bed in Scripture, just for the record. If you can find the passage which talks about the dating bed and the impurities that sometimes happen in a dating bed, you come talk to me. Those beds need to be burned. I'm going to ask you this morning, loved ones, in love, have you dedicated your marriage bed to the Lord? Maybe the place is your kitchen and the thing is your liquor cabinet. It's where the temptation mounts when you go close to this cabinet and you think of the swirling alcohol that kind of hangs in the cup and the feelings that you'll get if you drink. 
Have you dedicated your, kit, your liquor cabinet to the Lord? Or maybe you've excised and removed the liquor cabinet from your home because it doesn't belong to the Lord. Maybe it's your fridge. Maybe it's your phone, your laptop, your Netflix account, your online games. You may need to remove some of this from your life or if you're going to retain it, to consecrate it to the Lord. To say this belongs to the Lord. Everything that I have, everything that I own is ultimately the Lord's. Okay, you passed. As I prepared this message, I wondered when was the last time you walked through your home? Literally walked through your home and prayed over every room and the things that are in this room, dedicating them to the Lord. Have you done that? Remember doing this when we first moved into our home. I've done this when we moved into our office. I've done it a few times in my office space. I'm like, this is yours, Lord. This is yours, Lord. This is yours, Lord. It's good. These inanimate objects, you think, well, they're just an object. Yeah, but they can steal your heart. You consecrate the things in your life for the Lord. But it's not just places and things that the Lord wants us to consecrate in our lives for his glory. It's also us. (laughs) To the pure, all things are pure. So let's begin with this what we call the heart. We, loved ones, need to be made pure. We need to be holy to the Lord, as the priests were in the Old Covenant. Now, there are two reasons you may feel impure or unclean this morning. This is sensitive ground, and I walk upon this ground sensitively, understanding the complexity and the burdens of the things I'm going to share. But one of the reasons you may feel unclean, which is the common one, is because of the things you have done wrong. The things you have done wrong make you unclean before a holy God. The other reason you might feel unclean is because of what has been done to you. And this latter, of course, induces great trauma in the hearts of God's people too. But whether it's something that has been done to you that makes you feel unclean or you've done to another or things you've done wrong, both situations needs the purifying grace of God Almighty. We both need to be made clean, whatever our circumstances. We both need to be made pure, holy, sanctified. And really the story of the Bible is this. God has come to purify his people, all of us, in love. Whatever our story. And some of you have very, very broken and hurting stories. And I know that. I've been in ministry long enough. But our God comes to us this morning and says, I want to bring purity. I want you to be pure. I want you to be whole. I've come to purify you. Do you know that the first time in history, what's the first time in history that someone felt unclean? What's the first time in history that someone felt unclean? I'm just going to open that question up for an answer. Does anybody know? Adam and Eve. The first time in history that someone felt unclean. 
Adam and Eve believed the lie. They ate the fruit that they should not have eaten, and they felt shame. They felt unclean. They felt impure. How do we know that they felt impure? Because they found a fig leaf or two. Genesis 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Why? Because they wanted to cover up their shame. And they hid from God. One pastor puts it this way. He says, the rest of human history is different people picking different fig leaves to cover their shame. And there's a lot of variety out there of fig leaves that people are doing to, to cover their shame. And, and they're hiding their shame. They're not exposing it. They're not confessing it. They're just kind of hiding their shame and living, unfortunately, a lie. Some people use humor as a way to hide their shame and their guilt. Some use a stoicism. I'm not going to let that bother me. Some use pride because we can't sell, change what we, what we need to change, so we're just going to celebrate it. Some use sarcasm. You know, sometimes those who laugh the loudest are some of the most hurting people in the world. Do you know that? We're all just trying to find fig leaves to cover our shame. And God comes to you this morning and says, but I come to purify you. I come to make you clean. I'm finding you. And the universal solvent for cleansing is water. Dishes, we wash them with Water, unless we're a teenage boy. Cars, we, we clean our cars with water. Teeth, we brush them with water. Th this was the purifying agent in the Old Testament. It's a purifying agent today. And so God incorporates that water reality in the waters of baptism as the universal sign of spiritual cleansing. That's why we have baptism. Yet these waters don't cleanse us because they are a sign of, of cleansing. No, what the waters of baptism do is this. They point us to Jesus, the great purifier of our souls. Listen, loved ones. Jesus died to make you pure. to let you don whatever your story is, to let you don the white robes as we read in Revelation. Possibly in the time of Nehemiah, they were also wearing white robes as a sign of their purifying. Not that they purify themselves, but that God in Christ is purifying his people. That's why we get white robes. It doesn't matter our past. It doesn't matter our story. It doesn't matter the heights and the depths of your sin. In Christ, you are made pure and you get a white robe. No one else this morning can clean your soul, loved ones. No one else can make you feel whole again. No one else can remove your shame. And no one else will give you a new name. Only Jesus. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise. In Christ, listen, you can be clean. 
you can. And if you are clean in Christ, here's the next one. I camped out on that one for a little while. We're going to move quicker through the next two. You can have great joy. You can be glad. If you have a great cleansing, you have a great joy, great gladness. Because listen, if God makes you clean, he can also make you glad. Where is this gladness found in our text? Well, verse 27 begins. It says this. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals and harps and lyres. That's like our drums, guitar, and keyboard. Verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah go on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks, one led by Ezra and the other one uh, by Jezariah. Verse 43, we're just going to stop here for a little bit. Verse 43 says, On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Do you feel the joy bursting from our text? Or is that just me? Celebrating joy. Here's just some words from our text. Celebrating joy. Songs of thanksgiving with instruments. Large choirs giving thanks. Rejoicing. Great joy. Rejoice. Rejoicing in Jerusalem. And it resounded on the hills. It's so full of joy and rejoicing. It's just like... But as I said in the the introduction, would you agree with me that this is probably one of the most counter-cultural verses in the Bible? We do not live in an age of rejoicing, loved ones. Joy in singing has fast been eclipsed by confusion, by hurt, by pain, by loneliness, by sadness. You you are actually hard-pressed, even in our age, even in the Church of Christ, to find people who are just full of joy. They're hard to find. A research poll called Gunter polled Canadians in February of this year and said, what do you think about Canada? That's a loaded question. 70% of the women think Canada is broken. 70% of the women who were polled think Canada is broken. 64% of men. Canadians under 55 are even more pessimistic than Canadians over 55. 72% of Canadians under 55 think, this, can't, this country's going to pot. And 61% of those over 55. A few years ago, we had a, a, an illness that passed through. It's called COVID-19. Remember that one? Since then, anxiety and mental health globally has been up 25%. People are not glad anymore. It has affected the young people of our day globally the worst. They are facing the most mental health, anxiety, and depression in the history of the world. The world has never seen such statistics before. And the ones suffering the most, interestingly, are young women. I'm not a psychologist. I can't go into that. But I am a pastor. 
And there are various contributing factors for this depression of joy, this lack of joy. And some of you might be sitting here this morning and saying, that's me. I don't know what they're doing in Jerusalem singing like this because I, I had nothing to sing. I have not experienced that joy. The joy of just letting your voice fill the air, fill the space, raising your hands, even clapping, whatever the case is. I am just so full of joy. I haven't experienced that. Some of you might say. Let me just unpack that briefly. I know time is ticking. One of the great intruders to our joy, interestingly, in a very technological age, is fear. Do you know that? One of the great intruders to our joy is fear. Behind much anxiety and even depression are, are, is people's view of their life, and it's riddled with fear. Fear of what will happen to us. Fear that the darkness won't let the light get through. Fear that we won't be something. Fear for our health. Fear over our future. Fear over our friends. Fear over our family. There's, there's just so much fear in our present age. And that fear is mounting. Did the Jews have reason to fear in the days before the Messiah came? And the answer is yes. Their economy wasn't great. They were still a vassal state of, of, of the Persian government. The city really was still a heap of rubble. They still had their enemies hanging around the city, like Sambalat. We're going to find, about him, find out more about him next week. And Tobia and the Ammonites. They still were hated by so many people. Listen, their rejoicing wasn't because their lives all of a sudden got better. That all of a sudden their bank account went poof. And their infl inflation rates went poof. And their interest rates went poof. It wasn't because their circumstances changed suddenly that they started to rejoice. Listen. No, they got connected to God. And because they were connected to God, the joy began to overflow he was in their lives now. They had joy because they realized that the Lord had accomplished through them what was impossible. In the eyes of the nations around them, they had built this wall in 52 days. That's a God thing. They understood with the eyes of faith that even though they couldn't understand everything, but that God was still in control. He could move mountains if he wished. And figuratively, he did. They had joy because their spirits were enlightened and the crushing, the crushing burden of their sins was removed from them. They wept over their sins and God has says, you are forgiven. He forgave his people and the lightness and the joy that comes from knowing you are forgiven is a new kind of joy altogether. And they experienced that. Today, loved ones, there are many things to fear in our age. Things are dark. But we look past the ages. And we look to the one who is on his throne. And that one says to us in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, he says, For the Spirit of God gave us, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us, us timid, 
but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The New Living Translation says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. In Christ, loved ones, we can rise above our fears. In Christ, we can rejoice. They rejoiced over the walls, and today we rejoice that there is now no wall that separates us from God because Christ has broken down any barrier between us and the Almighty. They rejoice over their newfound home. We rejoice over the resurrection and the promise of an, our eternal home. They rejoice over their enemies who were silenced by the city being restored. We rejoice that the devil has been vanquished and death defeated. We have many, many reasons, loved ones, to rejoice. Of all the people on the planet... We are really the only people that have reason for real joy. Do you know that? Of all the people on planet Earth. And when we rejoice, we are making a public proclamation that our God reigns and that there is hope for tomorrow and grace for today. When we rejoice... We are making a public proclamation that God reigns, that there's hope for tomorrow and grace for today. How did they rejoice? They sang. They sang with all their might. They maybe even clapped. They maybe even raised their hands. We don't know, but they were engaged. The fathers were engaged. Listen up, men. They were engaged in the worship. And the kids were looking. My daddy's singing this all with his whole heart. That's awesome, fathers. Listen to me, fathers. When you're singing, your children are noticing. Your disengagement, they notice. Your engagement, they notice. They were singing with all their might. I read somewhere that men are emotionally constipated. I wasn't going to say that, but, you know. We're grumpy and then we sleep. The Spirit of God, when he comes alive in you, makes you alive in your spirit so that you can worship. And really, you know, when you are worshiping the Lord, you are exercising your spiritual muscle, which is called the soul. And God has given us the worship service so that we can exercise this soul, this spiritual muscle called the soul, every single week. And I think there should be times throughout the week, even in your homes or in Bible studies, where you're exercising this spiritual muscle through singing. I really do. I, I just become so convinced of this. That God knows that we need to worship him. Not because he needs our worship. He's self-sufficient. Self, self he doesn't need our worship. He gives us worship for us. So that we learn what it means to live in the joy of serving him. Women are mentioned. They were rejoicing. Women are able to experience worship almost in a different way than men. I've been around many women, even my mother, who would often have tears in her eyes as she was singing, and I would look at her as a kid. I'm like, Mom, why are you crying? Seriously. Because she was engaged in the worship. Because she knew what Jesus had done for her. And she was so thankful, and still is. Your testimony, moms, and aunts and uncles, aunts and sisters, grandmothers, in your worship is a good testimony. And then it mentions children. Do you know that? It mentions children. They were also rejoicing. They were singing with all their heart. There is no greater joy, listen, 
kids. There's no greater joy for a parent than to see their children worship with all their heart. There's no greater joy. You say, well, what are my friends going to think if I open my mouth and start singing? Well, don't worry about your, what your friends are going to think. You know, one of the things that you kids need to do when you, when you worship is simply this. Just imagine, just imagine for a moment, maybe we all need to do this, just imagine for a moment that the only one in the space with you is your Savior. You just ex- move everybody else out from your mind and say, I am worshiping my Savior. And as you do that, if he's the only one listening to you, if he's the only one watching you worship and celebrating your worship with you in some sense, I think you can worship and not worry about what your friends think. Maybe. It's such a gift. Great cleansing brings us great joy so that we can be glad. I'll just, just quickly close with this. It also allows us to be generous. One of the things that we notice in this text as we close off is simply this. That when, I think it's verse 47 that comes up. The first 47, or not 47, I had another verse up there. Um, no, not that one. Sorry. One of the things that we notice in this text is this. That verse 44, sorry. At that time when we were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contribution of first fruits and tithes from the fields around the towns. Listen, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah, listen, for Judah was pleased with the ministry, with the ministry of the priests and the Levites. So they were bringing these gifts. Their first fruits means what's first. So you, whatever you make, the first things go to the Lord. And your tithes are those regular contributions that you make. And, and if you're wondering, you know, tithe the New Testament, just imagine tithes as the ceiling in your giving and, and everything above that is the, is, is the floor in your giving and everything above that moves up to your ceiling. So that maybe help you with your tithes. But listen, they were happy to give for the continuation of worship. They were happy to pay for the worship team so the worship team could keep singing. They were happy to pray for the pay for the priests who would teach. They were happy to pay for the gatekeepers who kept the city safe. They were just really, really happy to keep on serving the Lord together. One of the reasons why you give generously, and you can because God has made your heart glad, is because you want to see what's going on here to continue. And not only to continue, but to bless other people. So you give. And you give generously. Because of what Christ has done. You know, God cleanses us and we respond in joy. God consecrates us and we respond in joy. God receives our gifts and we respond in joy. That's the nature of the Christian life, loved ones. And that's how we're going to live out our our life for his glory. And if you're wondering, at the end of the day, what's this all mean for me? Well, this means this, that you are a worshiping being. That's how you've been created. And if you're not worshiping Christ, you're going to worship something else. And Christ is calling you now into his fellowship, into his relationship with him and says, he says, I I want your heart. I want your life. 
I want you one day to join the myriads and myriads of people, a number that you can't count, in glory, around my throne, singing the praises that belong to my name and feeling so alive and so filled with joy when you do. I want you there. And to make that happen, Jesus, we read these words in, 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 in the promise of the gospel. To make that happen, we read in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, doesn't matter your story, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You'll be numbered among those who are singing praises before the lamb in eternity. When you put your faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for all that Jesus did for us. God, as we look at our own hearts, we see how much impurity is there, in there. And we have hurt from our past. People have done things to us. And yet you come to cleanse us and to make us whole again. You're the only one who can make us glad. You're the only reason for our joy. And I pray that every single one who's listening to this message will find their joy in Christ and will not be ashamed to open their mouths and make that public proclamation as they sing that Christ is my all in all. It's all for him and for his glory. Thank you for hearing this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I hope you were blessed by today's message. For more information about Mercy Christian Church, please visit us online at www.mercychurch.ca. Thanks for listening, and God bless.